Hi, I'm Nico, one of your co-hosts for Anything But, a podcast where we chat with notable people about anything but what they're notable for. I'm flying solo today since Rashmi and I are both working college students. Life can get a little chaotic sometimes, but it happens. And I'm really excited to be joined today by an acclaimed journalist, a female empowerment advocate, TV host, and a New York Times bestselling author. And in 2016, she boldly went public with her harassment claims against then Fox News chairman and CEO Roger Ailes, paving the way for the hashtag MeToo movement. Not only has our guest hosted the early show on CBS News, but she's also co-founded the nonprofit Lift Our Voices, fighting to eradicate forced arbitration clauses and non-disclosure agreements in workplace contracts that keep toxic workplace issues silent. Gretchen Carlson, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And I'm so glad to know that you're at Stanford. It's a nice thing that we've got in common. Um, but we might touch on that a little bit once we get to the anything but portion of the show. Uh, today, we're going to start off with some time talking about journalism and your activism work and then get into the anything but. But to kick it off, we know you recently championed two bipartisan landmark bills that are now laws in 2022 the Ending Forced Arbitration of Sexual Assault and Sexual Harassment Act, and the Speak Out. So we're wondering if you can tell us a little bit about the experience in championing that, championing that legislation, but also what these bills mean to you with your experience. Yeah, thank you so much, Nico, for asking the important questions. And my question to you is, how much time do you have? Because explaining how long it took me to pass these two bills would take a lifetime. But um, it was a five-year slog. And what happened was that after my story of harassment at Fox News seven years ago um, came out, I started hearing from thousands of people across our country. And they also had experienced similar things at work, unfortunately. So I realized there was an epidemic of sexual misconduct at work. But then I also realized there was an epidemic of silencing people who had the courage to come forward. And that's when I rolled up my sleeves and said, I have to do something about this. And so I started walking the halls of Congress and um, meeting with, you know, any member of Congress who wanted to learn more about these silencing mechanisms. And what I'm fighting against are NDAs, which I'm sure a bunch of your listeners have heard of, non-disclosure agreements. But I bet they have no idea what kind of NDA they've signed at work. Um, they think they're probably just signed something to protect trade secrets so you can't leave with like the recipe to Coke and go to Pepsi. But NDAs have become incredibly expansive now. So basically on the first day of work, you're signing an NDA that says you can never, ever talk about anything else that ever happened to you at work, including a human rights violation. So that's the first evil silencing mechanism. And the second one is forced arbitration, which is kind of wonky, but it basically means that you can't go to an open court to file your claim. And so everything goes to a secret chamber called arbitration. Never the intent of arbitration. It was supposed to be for small business disputes, not for human rights violations. So I had an arbitration clause in my last contract at Fox, and my lawyers told me I was screwed because they said, you're going to go to the secret chamber and nobody's ever going to hear from you ever again. And that's why they strategically, for any lawyers listening, came up with a brilliant strategy to sue Roger Ailes personally to try to circumvent my arbitration clause, which is the only way my case became public and arguably the only way we're in this movement right now. So I knew that we had to get rid of forced arbitration because that's where all these cases were going. And that's why we thought we had solved this because we weren't hearing about any of these cases. So um, I got a bipartisan coalition together. I know almost impossible in the most hyper political time of our generation. But I did. Um, I did after five years get enough um, specifically Republicans on board 
for both of these bills. And so last March, we signed into law with the president the ending forced arbitration of sexual assault and sexual harassment act, meaning now that you can no longer force anybody in the workplace to arbitration if they experience any kind of sexual misconduct. The biggest labor law change in the last 100 years. Then we went to work immediately on NDAs. And eight months later, because we had already had a good track record and built these coalitions, we were able to strike when the iron was hot and we got rid of NDAs in the Speak Out Act, also for sexual misconduct, um, before you file a legal claim. So if you've signed an NDA like one third of all Americans have on the first day of work, that's not valid anymore if you want to come forward about sexual misconduct before you file a legal claim. So these are, you know, two incredible laws that are going to help millions of people. And I never, ever thought in my wildest dreams I would be doing this work. That's incredible. It's Thank one you. of those things, too, where these laws are, are sweeping in the nature of how many people they will impact, like mm -hmm. you just mentioned. And I'm curious to know if you've had anyone come forth and reach out now that these, these bills have become law in yeah. their own stories for how these have impacted them. Yeah, great question. So by the way, these laws are retroactive. So what I mean by that is not that I can get out of my NDA from seven years ago. It's not retroactive like that. It's retroactive in the sense that if you have a work contract that has forced arbitration or NDAs that maybe you signed 10 years ago, or it's in your employee handbook or hidden somewhere else that you don't even know about, you don't have to abide by it anymore. And so one of our biggest things that we're doing now at my nonprofit, Lift Our Voices, is educating people about these laws because the onus is on the, the employee to know what their rights are now. So that's, that's a huge part of it. But yes, I've heard in the last year from a bunch of people, and there have been some pretty high-profile cases. There's one specific, specifically in New York where they have been able now to use our, our law and not have to go to arbitration. The other thing that they're using it for, which is really, really important, is sometimes you have a case that's a combination of sexual misconduct and gender discrimination, for example, or race discrimination, right? Right. And this law would normally not apply to gender or race discrimination, although we're working on those laws. But in this case in New York, there's a claim that involves sexual misconduct and gender discrimination, and the judge rules that neither could go to arbitration which is amazing because that's what we wanted to happen. We, we want to protect every disenfranchised group and we're working on getting laws for all of them. But so far we've been only, only been able to do sexual misconduct. But judges now are looking at this and saying, if you have a case that involves sexual misconduct with something else, they're still not going to throw you into arbitration, which is a huge victory. Definitely. And that seems like a, a change in itself in the way that your advocacy efforts are impacting marginalized communities in ways that are outside of the scope of maybe that initial legislation. Can you see any more of that happening in just the, I guess, generacy of, of marginalized communities in the workplace and maybe what you hope will still happen? Yeah, especially for, well, for anyone, but especially for young people, um, it's so important to understand what I'm working on for all disenfranchised groups. So if you go to my website, liftourvoices.org, it explains our entire mission. But in a nutshell, we are fighting for every protected class to own their own truths and own their own voices. And so 
even though we were really successful last year with two bipartisan laws, we're already going back for more now. So next week in um, D.C., we're introducing an amendment to the forced arbitration laws for another protected class. And I'm not at liberty to tell you which one it is yet, but it's either disability, race, gender, age, religion, LGBTQ+. Okay, it's one of those. And it's going to be bipartisan again. We hope that it will pass. But our mission is to keep taking a bite out of the apple and go back for more for another protected class each year with the hopes that eventually we will have everyone out of arbitration and everyone out of NDAs. At the same time, we're encouraging companies to do the right thing and take these policies out before we force them to do it. And, you know, we want them to to be good corporate citizens and stop hiding all of the bad behavior that's happening at work. Um, and so we're hoping that this will also be a push for them to get on the right side of history. And at the same time, we're changing laws for them to to change their policies. Right. Wow. Well, best of luck. That seems like a, <laughs> some big things you've got coming up in the near future here. Um, but we've spent some time here talking about Lift Our Voices. I do want to hit briefly on your journalism career before we jump into anything but all of this, because <laughs> Rashmi and I have pre prepared some exciting questions, one particularly that I'm excited to kick things off with. Um, but before we jump over that way, just to hit on the theme of journalism, I'm wondering if you can tell us what got you into it to begin with. Uh, oh because gosh. I, yeah, I know I recognize you from, from TV. I've seen you growing up. Um, so I'm curious to know how you got there in the first place. Well, I was an undergraduate at Stanford, but I did not study journalism. I studied organizational behavior. So I would have used that major to be a problem solver for companies or a corporate consultant. Um, and then I was going to law school. So I took the LSATs and, um, you know, I was planning to do that. Uh, ironically, then I, I, I was also a really serious classical violinist as a child and I quit at 17 and my mom and dad were really devastated by that. So um, my mom got a brochure in the mail about the Miss America pageant, if you can believe that. And she called me when I was studying in Oxford abroad and she said, I found something for you to do with the violin. And I was like, what? And she goes, I think you can try and become Miss America because 50% of a candidate's points are based on talent and you're smart. So you'll do well in the interview. And I was like, mom, no, 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 no. I don't want to do that. But my mom has been like the driving force in my life and my biggest critic and my biggest cheerleader. And um, so she convinced me to do it. So I left Stanford my senior year and went off on this venture. It, it ended up that I, I won. Um, and so... I was exposed to television and radio on a daily basis. And I was giving speeches every single day, many times without any notes. And so I developed these communication skills that were really, really great at a young age. And so people suggested to me, have you ever thought about television? And that's really how I got into it. It was like a fluke. And I knew my LSATs were good for five years. So if it didn't work out, I could still go to law school. But I started my career in Richmond, Virginia. And with like three months into it, I got a new boss and she said, you're now the political reporter. I was like, what? Um, I knew nothing, right? I was just, and, and back then there were hardly any women covering the governor, um, especially in a Southern state. And so it was a really, it was like sink or swim for me. And then I just fell in love with it. And then I went on to Cincinnati and then I went on to Cleveland and then I went on to Dallas to work for NBC. And then I went to New York finally to work for CBS News. And then um, I got an opportunity to do a Monday through Friday morning show, which was my 
goal ultimately in television at Fox News. And so um, I went there and I was there for 11 years, never knowing that, you know, something bad would happen to me and that I would end up now being known as a poster child for harassment in the workplace. But, you know, my journalism career actually prepared me well because you have to have thick skin to be a journalist and um, you get a lot of rejection. And so I think it made me a, a much stronger person for things I faced later on in life. Well, thank you for sharing that. That is definitely not the uh, traditional <laughs> route to journalism that I've, I've heard. I'm totally. a freelance photojournalist, so I'm doing a little bit more of a traditional path into uh, the journalistic world, perhaps. Yeah. Um, but I'm just exploring it for now. Um, you had mentioned, actually, the one question that Rashmi and I had discovered as we were doing some biographical research about you, the, the violinist part that we wanted to pull out because Rashmi and I are both, we, I guess in high school, we're both in the same orchestra. I play the cello, she plays the violin. Oh, wow. And we were curious because you are quite the accomplished violinist. I, I want to make sure our listeners understand you're a finalist in the 1982 Stolberg International String Competition. You won second place only to the now famous Joshua Bell in a 1981 competition. Yes. And you performed as a soloist with the Minnesota Orchestra at just 13. Is that all right? It is. Thank you. for Wow, you did your research. Uh, yeah, it, you know, look, it, it was sort of like my career as a child. And I, I equate it to when you see young gymnasts in the Olympics or figure skaters, you know. Um, that is the kind of effort and time that I put into my music. I was practicing four to five hours a day and, um, you know, and I was doing those kinds of performances. But what happened to me and what you see sometimes happen to figure skaters or gymnasts um, when they've devoted their life to something is that I burned out. And, and really for me, more than burnout, it was that I realized that to become a famous concert artist, a soloist, which is what I, that was my dream that I would have to give up everything else in my life. And it would be just tunnel vision to try to accomplish that. And I was interested in so many other things. And I just couldn't, like, in school, in high school, I was in all the plays, and I was in all the musical groups, and um, a bunch of other volunteer organizations. And I, I love sports, although my mom made me quit anything that would break my fingers. Um, but, but I just loved so many things, and academics especially. And so that's why I decided that I wasn't going to make it my career anymore. I also had seen a lot of people in their 20s at the time who I felt as musicians were unhappy. And, and I just remember knowing that and thinking that, and I have no idea if it was true or not. But I, I didn't want to choose something that I saw people not enjoying as much. And so that I remember that that factored into my, into my decision. But, you know, what's interesting is I still stay in touch with Josh Bell. Um, he lives in New York City and, and I, I live right nearby. And um, I actually got him once to be a judge at the Miss America competition. So, um, you know, he's, uh, he's somebody that, that I've stayed, you know, knowing all of these years. And when he competed against me, he was this tiny little kid with the red hair and a bowl cut. And, you know, he turned into like 6'3", Joshua Bell. But um, he, played, he played a pretty mean violin back then, too. Do you still play? No, I know it's horrible. Um, I, I should. I look at my violin every day in my closet. Um, I don't, you know, it's kind of like it doesn't it doesn't stay with you. It's not like riding a bike, as you know, and being a musician. And I'll never, ever be as good as I was when I was 12 years old. And for people who have been competitive in their life, they might understand this, but 
it's really tough for a competitor to play at such a subpar level. You know, when you were used to being so exquisitely talented. Um, and I know people say to me, we well, should just play for the sheer joy. And I, I always answer that I have lived vicariously through my children's musical abilities and they both play the piano. And um, so I did transfer the gift to them because I believe that it instills incredible self-esteem and self-confidence and self-worth in children. And it, it makes you so much more brave to do other things in the world if you've played music um, and you've performed it in front of other people. So it's still a huge part of my life. It's just not something I do on a daily basis. There are two things that I want to touch on and what you had just said too. Um, I want to come back to your kids and, and motherhood. But before we do, I'm curious, you had mentioned burnout, which is something that I've experienced in journalism too. And I think there are a number of professions in this world that can ultimately lead to some form of it. Now, hearing that you've dealt with it at, you know, in your, your violinist, your, your violin career, and I'm not sure if it's happened in your professional career, but in any case, what you might say to people out there who are currently going through that patch of, well, I, I know I loved to do what I'm doing at one point, and I really did, but there are also all these other things at that kind of crux of burnout decision-making. Yeah. yeah. What do you do? Well, you know, look, I, I've lived far longer than, than you have, so I have much more life experience. And, and I think that sometimes we, we really put a lot of pressure on young people, especially to know exactly what they want to do in their life and that they have to make these decisions when they're 15, 16, 17 years old, even 21 or 22 when they graduate from college. And I'm a shining example of somebody who has recreated herself countless times. Like if you, so if you look at the trajectory of my life, you know, I was going to be a concert violinist and then suddenly I was Miss America, like what? And, and, and then, and then I was going to be a lawyer, but then I became a journalist and, and then, and then I was going to, you know, always just be known for being a, a journalist. And then I suddenly blew the, the, you know, the walls down at Fox News and, and came out as, as a truth teller. And now I'm, I, I've completely reinvented myself as an advocate. And, and a person who runs a nonprofit and passes legislation. So my, and, and by the way, the last thing in my life, that, that's going to be my legacy. The most important thing that I've done so far in my life is the work that I'm doing now because I'm affecting millions of people. And there's not any television interview, including any interview I've done with any living president that would ever be more important than, than what I'm doing now. And so my life is a testament to it's okay to have a lot of different passions and it's okay to go from one to the next. The skill you need to make sure you have is the confidence in yourself to know that you can reinvent yourself and that there will be a couple bumps along the road, but that you'll eventually, you know, you'll eventually figure it out if you, if you have that hard work and fire in your belly. Um, so I'm a good example of changing your passion. Oh, a hundred percent. Just in the, we, I, I can tell you when Rashmi and I were going through finding some of the trajectory of your life, we, we had a really fun time learning your story uh, just because it is so varied. And I can tell you, I'm surrounded here by people who have, at the present at least, made a decision for what they're going to do, yeah. but already aren't necessarily happy with that decision. Oh. But there's this pressure or this idea that we have to, right? That yeah. the I think it's just that uncertainty is scary. 
So yeah. when you can lock into something so tightly and get good at it, regardless of whether you like it, oh, there's but, some but sense of security in that. But it is, but don't do that. <laughs> right, exactly. See, that's where I am, uh, I guess in my experience, at least a unique situation and just kind of exploring everything. I'm taking classes that look fun. Yeah. I do things because they're exciting, not because there's a very tangible end goal in mind. I'm of the belief that if I do what I want to do and what makes me happy while helping other people in doing so, everything will turn out just fine. So I've been trying to share some of that energy with some of my classmates and friends because it's a, it's a little bit of a David and Goliath battle that we have going on between this like societal idea that you do pigeonhole yourself, but then also the individual desire to spread your wings and explore more. Yeah, I would definitely do the, the latter. Like, look, I would have, uh, I still want to be a lawyer and I would have been, I would have been an amazing corporate consultant. I still have passion for that. I'm a, I, I use those problem solving skills every day in my life. I'm a good strategist. Um, I'm a good leader. All those things came from my passion in what I studied at, at Stanford, even though I'm not doing that, but I'm using those skills in this new passion, right? So it doesn't mean that you necessarily give up a passion. I mean, I, give, I gave up playing the violin, but I still love music. Um, I'm not a corporate consultant, but I could be. And I'm not right. a lawyer, but I tell my husband all the time, I'm still going to go to law school. So, you know, I think, I think there's a way to have passions, but move on to something else. And you still use the skills that you learned doing the other thing in the new thing that you want to do. So I think your approach is really great. I'll just tell you that I changed my major 12 times at Stanford. 12. Wow. Yeah. yeah I might, I might have the world record, but, um, I went from home bio to <laughs> to communications, to, you know, to, to international, you know, relations, to uh, finally ending up in, in organizational behavior. But uh, yeah, I just couldn't decide because I liked so right. many things. Yeah. No. Okay. This is, this is good. I, I appreciate too, especially for any of the college age students who are listening, who are truly a big part of our demographic too, in that idea that it's okay, you can, you can change what you're doing as many times as you want and you need. Um, I did want to come back to the idea of motherhood for a second because my sister, one of my sisters just had her first baby like two weeks ago, I think two weeks to the day. And I've seen just in that short amount of time how fast your life can change when this little screaming monster and also adorable being comes into your life. So I'm curious now you have, is it two kids? Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I'm blessed to have two kids. Yeah, I had a hard time having babies. So I always say I'm blessed and I got one of each. I'm a girl and a boy. Okay. Um, what has that been like? What is motherhood like for you? What have you learned from it maybe? was the most unexpected part of this journey in, in raising kids um, that's shaped the way you move through the world now? Yeah, it's kind of like, my entry into television knowing nothing about it. It's the same thing when the baby's port. It's like the only way you can experience it is actually experiencing it. Like you could read a bunch of books and it still doesn't do anything to help you understand it until it's actually there. But I always wanted to be a mom. You know, it's really, it's fascinating because as driven as I've been my entire life, I always knew I wanted to be a mom. And when I finally got to CBS and was doing a, a weekend morning show nationally for them, it was finally a good time for me to try to have a baby because before that I was an international correspondent. I was traveling all over the world. I had a suitcase packed at right. every moment. Um, so I was 
35 when I started thinking about having kids. And then I ran into difficulty with, with infertility. So, uh, you know, that's why I feel so blessed that I finally got my, my two children. Um, I would say the most unexpected thing was that when I was deciding whether or not I should come forward with my lawsuit, my tantamount concern was my children because they were in middle school at the time. And, and you know how tough that is anyway. And I didn't want them to be made fun of in any way. But the greatest lesson I've learned is that my courage transferred to them. And I underestimated how well they would be equipped to handle what their mom was going to do and all the fallout from it. And they have become not only my biggest cheerleaders in, in what I'm doing now, but they've also become educated on how important it is to not subjugate, you know, protected classes, women, uh, minorities, et cetera. And that I think is one of the greatest lessons that I could have ever given them as a mother. And they've, they've come home to me, both of them, and expressed either the courage that they received. My daughter uh, finally had the, the courage to tell some girls in middle school who were not treating her well, you know, to buzz off. And she, told, she came home and said, mom, I would have never, ever done that if I hadn't seen you have so much courage. And my son, he saw me one time on television and another woman was talking about the horrible statistics in our nation that once every 73 seconds, a woman is assaulted or harassed. And he said to me, when I got home, he said, mom, is that true? And I said, I'm so sorry to tell you that that is true. And at the time he was 12, he said, as a young man, mom, I want to help fix that. I was like blown away that this was my kid. You know, I mean, if I had only changed those two lives, in what I did, it would have been worth it. I know I've changed so many other lives, millions of people I'll never meet, but the most important two lives were my children. And, and so, you know, you never know, nobody knows how to parent really, and you never know what's going to end up happening and how your kids are going to turn out. But I feel so confident now that they learned something positive from the scariest thing that I've ever done in my life. Wow. No, that's definitely something that I have, I guess, naively probably I didn't consider as a, one of your decision-making factors in, in taking that stand oh, yeah. and coming out. Yeah. But it makes complete sense. And sounds like your kids are pretty cool. So They are. And the only, the only thing I'll add is when you become a parent, it's not about you anymore. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, you, you, you're in charge of this living, breathing soul, you know, and you, you, so all of your decisions then are, are around their well-being. And so, you know, yes, it was the blessing of my parents, but then it was the blessing of my, my children, even though they didn't really understand what I was telling them the night before I did it, but it's worked out as best as it possibly could have. And, you know, my, my son even wrote his college essay about lessons he learned from being a young man and how that impacted him in watching what his mom did. I mean, wow. You know, like he took that risk in writing about something like that. And, you know, I'm happy to say he's going to the Ross School of Business at Michigan and, um, you know, really incredibly proud that he made that decision. That's awesome. Well, Thanks. I do want to be mindful of time here. We have just two brief questions for you remaining. Um, one is a little bit of a niche question that came up in our research. And then two is a, a question we like to ask everybody to close the show out. 
first, we know that you're from Anoka, and we're both from Minnesota. We're, we're Minnesota kids. Oh, you're right. Uh, I didn't even know yes. that. Yeah, awesome. St. Paul and Mendota Heights. So we we grew up right in the Twin Cities. Um, but Anoka, the Halloween capital of the world. <laughs> I'm curious. So I, I'm from Minnesota, and I didn't know that. But it, as I'm doing some reading, that it sounds like it's a big deal. Um, mm. Can you talk to me a little bit about what Halloween was like growing up then? Maybe <laughs> this is this is not quite a very smooth segue from the the discussion about lessons learned from parenting, but it's something we wanted to make sure to ask before we we lost you and the the time we have together. Yeah, look, uh, you got more candy. Um, definitely being in the Halloween capital of the world because we had this humongous parade and we celebrated for like the entire month of October. So that was a good thing as a kid. Um, the interesting thing is, is that when, after I became Miss American, I was on some like late night talk shows. Um, you probably don't remember David Letterman, but he was, he was, of course, David Letterman. Yeah. Okay. So he asked me why Anoka was the Halloween capital of the world. And I didn't know. And my town got so mad at me. Um, so I definitely know now why it is. And apparently it came about in the 1930s or 40s when the eve of Halloween was a time when teenagers would go out and cause trouble. And my mm. town was the first one to come up with social programs for the family to stay together and, oh. and do fun family things on the eve of Halloween. And so, you know, we have this emblem that's, that's in the ground outside of our city hall in Anoka that, that was given to us from Congress. One time when I was doing an interview on Halloween at, uh, when I was at Fox, I interviewed the mayor of Anoka and the mayor of Salem, Massachusetts, and they went at it. And they, they had a debate about who was really the Halloween capital of the world. Uh, but I sided with Anoka. So it was, yeah, it was really, really cool. One time we were watching, all my siblings and I were watching that one of these like dating show games as kids. And the prize was going to the Halloween capital of the world. And we all started laughing because we were like, we like growing up here, but do they know where they're going? <laughs> Because it's not, you know, it wasn't like they were going to Vegas, you know, or Malibu right. or something like that. Um, but anyway, it was it was a wonderful place to grow up, and you'll understand as a Minnesotan. And by the way, you don't have the accent. Um, <laughs> I lost mine too, I think. But uh, when I come home, I listen to the radio, and I'm like, oh my god, did I used to talk like that? But um, I loved it. I, you 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 can attest to this. It was a wonderful place to grow up. Yes. And I bring my kids back to Minnesota frequently because I want them to see a simpler life than, than New York City. And uh, they love it. They love it, too. And so and I'm still a huge Minnesota Vikings fan. So I haven't lost I haven't lost my roots. Good, good. <laughs> uh, have you brought any of the Halloween capital of the world traditions to your kids? Have they gotten to experience an Anoka Halloween yet? Yeah. I, so I have some of the best decorations in my entire neighborhood because I go all out, uh, you know, because I, I, it's like one of my favorite holidays. And yeah. And then, you know, and oh, the other thing growing up, you know, we always had incredible costumes, too, because it, it, it was a big deal. So I've always tried to make sure that my kids have great costumes as well. Awesome. Well, our very last question to close us out is a question that, it's pretty open-ended. What's something you've always wanted to be asked? Uh, uh, oh, my gosh. I thought you were going to ask me the anything but question. Um, what I've always wanted to be asked. Oh, um, are you going to run for politics? Well, we'll turn it back <laughs> on you then. <laughs> um, the answer definitely would have been no, like, 10 years ago. But 
uh, I'm keeping my options open. I'm, I just wish you didn't have to go through the process of everything that happens to you as an individual. You know, I think that's why a lot of people mm. decide they don't want to run. But I've had all this experience now in, in passing legislation. And so I've become intrigued by it again. So never say never. You never know. Well, it sounds like we'll stay tuned then. Yep. And thank you so much for joining us. That is all we've got. We want to be mindful of your time. And we really appreciate you taking time out of your day to join us. Thank you so much, Nico. Have a, have a great time at the rest of your year at Stanford. Anything But was created by Rushby Arrangement and Nicholas Lepins, produced by Iman Rahman, with original music by Caleb Liu. 